And before we begin, we have another sponsor to thank, Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, New Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. As usual, I'm squeezing in as much podcast as my producer will permit, so I will dispense with the preamble. The Dodgers are in the midst of an important three-game series with their division rivals, the Giants. The Dodgers have taken the first two games of that series to extend their NL West lead to three games, and they've done that despite leading the major leagues in days lost to injury. So I'm going to talk to Stan Conti, who served as the team's head athletic trainer and vice president of medical services until he resigned late last year. He's going to tell us how a team can lead the league in injuries, but still be sitting in first place. It's not purely payroll related. But before I talk to Stan, I'm bringing in another guest. When the Astros head home tomorrow to take on the Rays, their lineup will likely feature Yulieski Goriel, the Cuban baseball legend who made his Major League debut on Sunday. And to talk about how Goriel was scouted and signed to a five-year, $47.5 million deal, as well as what his debut means for Cuban baseball and its nebulous relationship with the major leagues. I'm welcoming in a friend and former colleague who's gone on to bigger and better things, such as playing an instrumental role in signing big leaguers to big contracts. He's the pro scouting director for the Houston Astros, Kevin Goldstein. Kevin, good to talk to you. Hello, Ben. So I wanted to have you on to talk about Ilyeski Goriel, the newest Astro. I was reading Jorge Arangure's article in Vice Sports the other day, and he wrote about his history with Goriel and, and how 10 years ago, when Goriel was on the 2006 WBC team, it was the first time anyone had ever seen Cuban players. We'd heard their names. No one had seen them play. It was a, an exciting moment when they showed up. And now we have seen Goriel in the majors for the first time, but he's been in international competition many times, not just in the WBC, but in the Olympics, the Pan Am Games, Japan. So if you're going through ground control now, how far back does the Goriel file go? Um, it's funny you asked that, actually, in preparation for this interview. I, I wondered that myself, and, and I looked back at our system, uh, and, I, and we have nine reports on the guy. Um, you know, We have people seeing him playing for the Cuban national team and, and various permutations, playing against uh, Team USA, playing in the WBC, playing in, in, in various international competitions throughout the world. We've seen this guy. Um, we, we, we have history with this player. I'm not going to say it still isn't something. You know, when we saw, you know, I went to his workout in Miami. That was my first time I'd seen the player in person. And, and for me personally, there's still a bit of a, you know, oh, my God, I'm seeing a unicorn. You know, kind of situation where there was this, this mythical player, uh, you know, that, that was in front of me for the first time. But as an organization, we certainly had a, a years-long, multiple eyeballs look at this guy and, and felt comfortable with who he was as a player and, and both in who he was as a person. And how has he changed over the course of those reports dating back a decade or however long it is? You know, it's, it's, change is a funny word. I, I'm not sure he's changed as much as he kind of proved his track, has proved what he was with his track. You know, as a guy who he always hit. Um, whether it was playing you know, in, in the Serie Nationale there in Cuba, which is their, their, their major league equivalent, whether it was playing for the Cuban national team in various international competitions, whether it was playing in Japan, you know, which he did for a year. The one thing he's always done is hit. 
and you've never really seen him struggle too much. Wherever he goes, he, he gets there and he hits. Um, and so it was that kind of consistency uh, that, that really kind of attracted us to him as well as, you know, just kind of who he is as a player and, and the fact that this guy has, has, has done it on the, on the biggest stage it's made available to him every opportunity he's had. And he stayed in Cuba for years while many other players left, and he was sort of a, a leader on the national team and the figurehead of Cuban baseball, in a way, part of a very distinguished Cuban baseball family. So to the extent that you are familiar with his thinking, why did he decide to defect this past winter where he had presumably passed up prior opportunities to do so? Um, you know, I'm not familiar with this thinking. And it's one of those things where I think for the most part when when, when these players become available, you know, those are very personal decisions, obviously, um, that go well beyond baseball. And, you know, I, both myself and Lawrence Davies tend to focus on the baseball. And, you know, here's this player and he's, he's here and he's available to us uh, in terms of working out and hopefully negotiating a deal, which which we did in the case of Bewley, um, it's not a question you ask. You, you, you just move on. He's, he's ready to play Major League Baseball, uh, and let's focus on the present there and not the past. And so the blog post about the Astros signing of Guriel on the local SB Nation blog said, Astros sign Yulieski Guriel. Huh? What? Why? And there were 19 more question marks, I think, in the post. And the confusion was less about whether Guriel was worth signing, but just whether he made the most sense for the Astros because of Correa, because of Altuve, because of Alex Bregman, who was already switching positions because he was blocked by Correa. So there seemed to be a logjam of sorts. So what was the, the reasoning behind adding a guy to an infield slash corner outfield that already seemed pretty crowded? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, Ben. I, I, in my in my to the Astros, having too many good players has never really been a big problem. Um, you know, it's not a situation where, you, oh, no, we have too many good players. You know, this, is, this, is, this is a really good player. This is a, this is a guy who can hit. It's a guy who has defensive flexibility uh, in terms of he can play anywhere in the dirt. He can play the outfield a little bit. He can play all over the place. You know, the way we saw it is we were signing a player who could impact big league baseball games. So let's sign him. Let's put him in Astros uniform. And as far as the lineup, we'll let AJ figure that out, which he's done so far. You know, with Bregman, I'm sure he can do it with with, with Yuli as well. It's, you know, you don't walk away from a player with this kind of talent just because you have another player who plays positions similar to him. You know, those things work themselves out. They always do. You know, we see it working itself right now with Bregman. It's going to work itself out with Yuli and you know, I got to tell you, if you go through history and you go think of all these situations where some team had, oh, we have too many players uh, at position X, you know, at some point in the next 24 months, they didn't have enough players at position X. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things, depth is never an issue, and, and if you have enough players, they'll all figure out a way to get in the lineup. Right. Luis Valbuena suffered a season-ending injury after the Guriel signing, and suddenly there's space now, so case in point. So I know that he held private workouts or teams held private workouts with him. What were you and your scouts looking for in the most recent look that you had at him before actually signing him? Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, it's not an especially important uh, evaluation opportunity in a lot of ways. You know, like I said, we've seen the player, we've seen the player, uh, you know, against live competition, which is the best evaluation opportunity. This is a chance just to, to get a recent look at him. To, to stand, you know, get, stand right next to him, to talk to him, to look him in the eye, uh, to see what kind of physical shape he's in, to see how he's doing. It's more of a meet and greet in a lot of ways for us. This is how we saw because we had history with the player. But yeah, we went down to Miami. It was uh, Jeff Luna, our GM, myself, Ozzo Campo, our international director, uh, Charlie Gonzalez, a special assistant who 
kind of leads up a lot of our Cuban work and, and John Martin and, and Aries got in Florida. And it was really just, it was a simple workout. Just, you know, hit some ground balls, take some BP. It was not, you know, it's not the kind of situation where if you never saw the guy before, you would sign him maybe. It was, it was more of a, hey, here he is, written in the flesh, and let's let's talk to him and let's watch him hit some balls. And then he's in shape, his timing looks good, and, you know, let's do this is, is really what that is. It's not the place where we're definitely making decisions about the talent of the player or anything like that. It's more of just a, a time to get a recent look at the player and more importantly just kind of meet him and talk to him and in his last season in cuba i mean he'd always hit well in cuba but his last season in cuba had just insane <laughs> video game stats that everyone is enjoying sharing he batted 500 on the nose with 38 walks and three strikeouts so how much of an indication is that of the talent level there after so many players have left do you have a sense of how Cuban baseball compares right now to, say, a, a minor league level in the States? Um, I, I don't. It's been a real challenge for us. Um, it's been a challenge for uh, our analyst folks who, who do work with Cuban stats to um, you know, just kind of adjust for, for the, the talent level. Obviously, the, the, the talent level when you had stars like Yuli, like Jose Abreu, like Jonas Espedes, and like so many others who, who have come over here uh, is much different than what it is now. And so it's something where you do have to you know, adjust for this level. Uh, and um, it's been a challenge to them. Obviously, it's not the same as it was, uh, but at the same time, there are still some very, very good players over there. And he didn't really have that much time to get up to speed, so how did player development try to get him ready to contribute this season while also maybe familiarizing him with positions he hadn't played ever before or certainly hadn't played in years? It seems like a lot to lay on a guy who is coming to a, a new country also at the same time? It is luckily on a guy, and that's one of the things is, you know, we think this guy is, is a little different makeup-wise, and not say it in a positive way. You know, Yulievsky loves baseball in a way that kind of reminds us of Altuve, where if he's not sleeping, he wants to play baseball. So it's one of those kind of players, and, and so we thought he could come up to speed quickly, and, and he seemed ready. Um, he had played uh, earlier this year in the Caribbean Series, so we did have some time against real competition, but still it hadn't been since February. And the good news is, is since he was in Florida, you know, what he was doing was working out and playing baseball. Um, obviously, he wasn't playing in games, but you know, every day he was, he was hitting in cages and taking ground balls. And he was constantly staying in shape and, and keeping his skills uh, as polished as you can without facing live competition. So, you know, Uli, in a lot of ways, was very close to, to getting ready to, to hit the ground running. He did need, you know, what we kind of saw in many ways was kind of a spring training just to get his timing back and and get some of the rust off, uh, but but he came up to speed pretty quickly for us, and it was about at the rate we thought he would. How much experience did he have at those other positions? I mean, he'd been primarily a third baseman, he'd played some second base, and now he might be seeing some time in the outfield, so what were the preparations for that like, and what was his previous experience there? Um, I mean, he's played everywhere in the dirt, so I mean, he was a guy who, when he was very young, came up as a shortstop, um, played a lot of third base and second base for both Cuba and, 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 and as well as you know, in Syria National as well as for the in Japan. So he, we're comfortable with him anywhere in the infield. Uh, you know, as far as the outfield goes, you know, he's such a good athlete and such an experienced player with, with such a high baseball IQ that you know, left field probably isn't going to be too hard for him. We hit him some fly balls in left field when we worked him out in Florida, and, and it looked fine. Um, and that's why we were comfortable, you know, discussing that as an option as well and just you know, giving this guy a lot of positional flexibility, thus giving AJ a lot of flexibility in the lineup. So it's something that we believe is something we like. It's something we do with a lot of our players. And, 
know, a lot of our prospects who are, you know, much far smaller towns than Newley where we you know, try to give them, really show them different positions and play them in games at different positions to give them a better flexibility and, frankly, a better opportunity to reach the big leagues. How do you know that Guriel is ready for a promotion? I'm sure that's a, a decision that you play a part in, player development plays a part in, many people play a part in, but the stats at AA and AAA in a tiny sample don't jump off the page and say, oh, this guy's ready. So what was it that the team was looking for and saw that convinced you or whoever played a part in that decision that the time was right to promote him? Sure. I mean, obviously, we were talking to our, our, our managers and coaching staff at, at the levels that Yuli played at, so Lancaster, Corpus, and Fresno. Uh, we also had scouts, at, I mean, our own scouts at those games. Um, but you're right about the stats not playing a huge role. What we were looking at was, was quality of bats and barreling up baseballs. So, you know, Yuli's last game, he did not have a hit in the box score. He did a zero under the hit column. He also smacked three balls really hard. Um, and so that's the kind of thing we were looking for. And, you know, we, we actually track that kind of stuff uh, with all of our prospects, with all of our minor leaguers, where, you know, I can tell you who leads our every team, who leads our entire system in hard-hit balls. Um, and it's more about keeping track of that and keeping track of the quality of the bats. And they improved. He got his timing back. And, uh, you know, that's when we decided he was ready to come up. And I wonder how your thoughts on projecting plate discipline have evolved since you've been in baseball for a while now. There have been some young Astros who've just added that ability, guys like Altuve and Springer. There are other guys who don't seem to have as advanced approaches, not that everyone has to have the same plate approach, but it seems like there are certain hitters who can add that as they age and others who haven't. And if you look at the history of some players who've come over from Cuba— there are, you know, at least anecdotally cases of guys who did really well early on, but haven't seemed to be able to make the counter adjustments after they've been in the league for a year or two. And as you mentioned, it's hard to translate those Cuban stats that are just off the charts into what they'll actually be in the minors or the majors. So how do you evaluate that aspect of performance, particularly with a guy who at 32 you figure is close to a finished product? Yeah, I mean, I think we, I think he is a finished product. It's not something we're going to improve, but I think it's something that was fine as it is. And it's not like, Yuli, as a history, is not a guy who was seen as kind of a free swinger going up there hacking, is a guy who, you know, worked the count and make good, makes good swing decisions. And, and so it's not always something we seen, we were concerned about. We've seen him a lot in competition, like I said, and it's a situation where you look for the basics. You know, does this guy leave the zone? Does he swing at bad pitches? And does this guy attack when he gets a good pitch to hit? And you know, those are the two things you look for. And, you know, he passed both those with flying colors as far as we're concerned. And it's a situation where, you know, you're not necessarily going to get a player who draws 100 walks a year. That's a rare thing. Um, you're just looking for a player who's going to, to put up a professional at bat and, and make good swing decisions. And so there, there, there are players where they will do exactly what you want them to do in terms of good swing decisions who walk 50 times a year. And there are players who do exactly that who walk 80 times a year. Um, it's as much a function of times of how they're being pitched to as to their own ability, their own kind of strikes on recognition, if you will. And is there a class of Cuban hitter who kind of falls into what people describe as a quadruple-A hitter in the minors, whether that exists or not, someone who can feast off a certain sort of pitching but doesn't have the skills that would translate to a higher-level league? And, you know, how do you be sure that you're not getting that kind of guy? Well, I, you know, be sure is is is... is something that doesn't exist in my world. Yeah, we're never really sure. <laughs> so we get, yeah, we, we get a lot wrong with scouts. And that's just, you know, there's a human factor here that, that's hard to measure sometimes. And 
yeah, look, we get things wrong. But you know, I think the, in Guriel's case, one of the things that, that really comforted us so much, like I talked about earlier, was this track record. You know, we weren't just going off, hey, he had a couple of good years. You know, this guy had a decade and a half of excellent performances across the board. And I saw you uh, write something online a few days ago in between the, the usual contrarian posts about how the Beatles are a bad band. and <laughs> They're not. Yeah, it's just, it's, they're not that good. Like, it's not that they're bad. It's just, I, don't, I don't understand why everybody goes crazy. Yeah, them. you don't understand Hamilton. You don't understand Shawshank. You don't understand lots of things. That... I don't understand either of those things or the appeal of either of those things. I understand them. I don't understand the appeal of them. Well, I'm sure you have better opinions about baseball players. But you took a break from that kind of Kevin Goldstein post to have a, a genuine comment that came after Guriel's first hit on Monday. And you wrote that there weren't a lot of fans there to see it and there wasn't a ton of fanfare. But it was a big deal and, in my mind, an important marker in Cuban baseball. And it's difficult to define relationship with MLB. So what did you see as the larger non-Astros significance of Guriel's debut? Yeah, I mean, this was a player who had long been seen as the best player in Cuba. And obviously he's 32 now. We didn't find a 23-year-old. But you know, this is a player who was in some ways kind of the Ken Griffey Jr. of Cuba. It might be the best way to put it just because his father was also a great player. His father was also a fantastic manager over there. This was a, you know, the iconic player of the league there, the iconic player of the national team, and a player that you know, for a long time I think the industry wondered if we'd ever see him play Major League Baseball and to see him you know, not just put on an Astros uniform, or just step to the plate in a Major League Baseball game, you know, and, and fire a line drive into center field and, and round first base. You know, just kind of got my heart pumping in a way that, that you know, it, it was exciting. It was exciting to watch and uh, exciting to be a part of. And I really think a lot of that excitement would still be there uh, if it was done for another team. It was just kind of exciting to see this guy who, you know, is a legend in a lot of ways, and certainly a legend in the world of international baseball. Uh, you know, finally come to Major League Baseball, and, and that's what we want. You know, we want the best players here, and, and the fact that that he's here, I, I saw as a, as, as, a, as an important moment. Maybe I didn't put too much gravity on it because I worked for the team and because there at the workout and things like that, but it, it, it really did feel like something. And how are you and the international department trying to prepare, given the continued thawing of Cuban relations with the U.S. and President Obama's calls for the end of the embargo and it's still unclear exactly how that's going to affect the relationship between Cuban baseball and American baseball, but presumably teams are trying to lay some groundwork in some way in case something does happen at some point. So are there any preparations you can make before there's some big sweeping announcement? I mean, there are preparations we can make, and I think the thing that we just try to do is stay on top of it. And, and you know, we do have kind of this multi-pronged approach to it where, you know, it, it, it's certainly led by our national department and Oz, um, but we do have Charlie Gonzalez, like I said before, who's kind of like a scout, who's mostly a scout, but also, you know, kind of in charge of all of our Cuban stuff within a way to way in terms of just kind of staying on top of the players who are here, staying on top of the workouts, making sure we're seeing all the right players at the right time. Um, and then the pro department see these players as well. So we've kind of a, a lot of people involved and a lot of people who are staying current with what's going on with, with Cubans and with Cuban players. Uh, so when, you know, if and when something does change there, you know, we can be ready to, to react quickly. And that, that's really the goal is to be able to, 
quickly make changes or quickly do what we need to do in order to make sure that, that the Houston Nationals are doing their best for these players. And lastly, there is another Guriel. Yolieski has a younger brother, Lourdes, who is an attractive prospect in his own right and will probably be the subject of a bidding war sometime soon. Is signing Yolieski any sort of inside track? Was that a consideration at all? Have you scouted him as extensively as you have Yuli? Uh, I mean, we have, we have all seen Lourdes. Uh, Lourdes is a very talented player. I'm not going to say too much more because he's still out there. Right. Um, but you know, as far as us having an inside track, I, I would say Lourdes is his own man. I mean, we're excited about Lourdes' ability. Uh, he's certainly a good player. But uh, there's 29 other teams out there who are excited about Lourdes' ability as well. And I'm sure that, I'm quite sure that's the case. Um, there's a talented player who's going to be available. And at some point, we'll all see him at workouts. And there'll be a point where he'll be looking for a contract and we'll see what happens. But, you know, I would estimate our chances are at about one in 30. Um, I, you know, with all these players, you know, everybody kind of starts very much so on kind of an even basis. So, uh, right now, we're we're all just one of 30 teams probably interested in the services. All right. I said lastly, but I lied. Just from the, the first <laughs> few years that you've spent with the Astros, you know, since 2012, you've seen the total transformation of the team. You've seen all of the players who were highly touted prospects or rookies when you arrived blossom, or many of them blossom into really talented players. Has there been anything you've taken away from observing guys like Altuve and Correa developing and getting to the majors and continuing to get better? I'm sure you are learning things from the scouts that you talk to and the games that you see almost every day, but has there been any big lesson, any big takeaways that you've seen from watching those guys up close and not just writing about them and hearing scouts talk about them, but seeing them firsthand and getting to watch them add skills that in some cases people hadn't even projected them to add. <laughs> wow. That's how you know how to answer that. That's all the question. <laughs> but I, the first thing that comes to mind is just, you know, something that I think we say a lot, which is baseball is really hard, Then mm-hmm. you get up on these guys, you watch the games close up, you realize just how good these guys are at baseball and how difficult the game is. Uh, and the second thing is just kind of more of a humbling thing. And, you know, a friend with the Red Sox, I know, has had things up in his office. It's a big, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sign. And I don't know, can I use a, like a small bit of profanity? Sure. It just says, we don't know shit. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that one. Like, I, I, you know, we don't know shit. This is a humbling game. And, and I'm, I'm happy that this team has gone from, you know, a hundred lost team to a playoff contender. I'm happy to feel like I've played even a small part in that. Um, at the same time, the time that you and I have spoken, we could double it and I could reel off every mistake I've made. Mm-hmm. You know, and every mistake we as an organization made about players. And, and that's the thing. Like, this is really difficult to do, and, and we're going to get a lot wrong. Uh, and then the second you think you know everything about this game um, is the second you try, probably stop working in this game. You know, there's, there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot to get right. And we're not going to get a lot of those things right until we get more wrong. And so we, we don't know shit. It's a long way to go here. Well, about 25 minutes ago in an email to me, you got your own phone number wrong. So I would believe. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get, you asked for a landline. I, I, who knew? I, I, forgot, I almost forgot I had a landline. <laughs> I would believe that you've made mistakes because I just witnessed one, although it wasn't a costly one. <laughs> You got the right area code, at least. All right. Kevin, I would tell people to follow you on Twitter, but you don't tweet anymore. It's a complete waste of time. You missed. We had some fun back in the day, though. <laughs> you still have more followers than I do. You haven't tweeted in two years. You're still doing okay. True? That can't be true. 
true. No, it's true. She probably says more about me than, than about you, but, <laughs> but people can find your occasional food tweets at Kevin underscore Goldstein if they want to, or they could just watch the Astros, the team that you helped put together. So, Kevin, thanks. Good talking to you as always. It was good talking to you, Ben. All right, before we talk Dodgers and Disabled Lists with Stan Conti, let's pause for a message from our sponsors, including Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. I've been enjoying Blue Apron for the past couple weeks. It's been a treat to get great meals delivered straight to my house. Every week I'm excited to try new foods I'd previously never thought to make. Last week I told you about my curried catfish. Last night I tried some chilled chicken ramen with fresh noodles, summer beans, and tomato. It was as tasty as it sounds. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. And as a result, its seafood is sourced sustainably, and its beef is raised humanely. They even use regenerative farming practices for their produce. Some of the meals available in August that I haven't already mentioned are spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad, summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplant, shishito peppers, and corn. If I'm making your mouth water, you can make it stop by checking out this week's menu and getting your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash ringer mlb you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait that's blueapron.com slash ringer mlb blue apron a better way to cook and i also want to talk to you about SeatGeek. buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time it's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to none of those older ticket sites wants to change that but SeatGeek is different they've come along and created an amazing app and website that make it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. Going to see Jeff Lynn's Electric Light Orchestra soon? Because I'm a sucker for a nice hook and some strings. You could see ELO yourself at the Hollywood Bowl next month. Going to see my favorite band Sloan in New York in October? For some sweet melodic power pop. You can get tickets to that show with SeatGeek too. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value, you'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and then enter the promo code, which is Ringer MLB. SeatGeek will send you your $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Ringer MLB today. All right, back to baseball. On Tuesday, the Dodgers got some good news. They beat the Giants to gain a game on their NL West rival and a rehabbing Clayton Kershaw through a bullpen session and said he felt fine. That was all great. On the bad side, they also placed two starters on the disabled list, Brett Anderson and Scott Kazmir, and in the process tied the 2012 Red Sox for the most players ever placed on the DL in a single season. That is no longer my next guest's problem. Stan Conti was the (laughs) Dodgers head athletic trainer for nine years. He became their vice president of medical services. He resigned from the team last November, which means he no longer has to worry when Dodgers players get hurt, but wanted to have him on to help fill us in on how injuries work at the major league level, how it's possible to contend while suffering from so many injuries. Stan runs a consulting company called Conti Injury Analytics, and he is also doing some research on health and injuries with Major League Baseball and other clients. 
Stan, thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me, Ben. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, on a typical team, if you had to assign percentages to explain how many injuries the team had or didn't have, to what would you attribute a team's health? If one factor is, say, just roster construction, whom you sign, whom you acquire, and another factor is just pure luck, either bad or good, and another factor is your training and your medical staff. And maybe there are other factors I'm, I'm not considering. But if you had to kind of break down the responsibility there, either bad or good, how would you do it? Well, I think um, it's tough. It's tough to actually grade things like this. And I think um, we have a tendency to want to put a lot of credit on one area and a lot of blame on the other when things go good or bad. But, you know, roster construction really is critical uh, from my standpoint. Player selection is pretty in-depth now, and, and with all the analytics on performance, um, it becomes a science experiment in regards to which players are you going to go after. And, you know, baseball has done a great job on, on doing that. But one of the areas that they don't do as well on, at least in my perception, is factoring in the health aspects and health potential risks and uh, what those variables are. Uh, so that kind of goes to your second idea of luck. Baseball being um, the majority of these are overuse injuries as opposed to football, which is a collision physics concept. Um, you know, so you have a little bit better chance of, of predicting uh, injuries and where their risk analysis is and, and how that blends with performance. Uh, and I can tell you over and over from different GMs and different people said, you know, we really want uh, player X and he is so good. He's a Hall of Famer. And when you look at his health history and other variables, you find out that uh, that I have a better chance of getting on the field than he does. <laughs> and how do you mix and match those? And where do you take risks? Uh, where is your risk reward uh, ratios out when you start looking at uh, a player, you know, that can you know, potentially can really help the team from a performance standpoint, but has difficulty staying on the field because of health. The training room and the medical staff obviously play a critical part in that. And that depends on really how involved in front office decisions they are and if they're in sync with that so that they can give players risk assessments and the, the GMs will take that into account. And I think most GMs at this point uh, definitely have their, their uh, medical staffs involved, whether it be the team physician, the head trainer. Personally, I think in regards to the whole medical department, the guy who's the, who prevents injuries more than anything other than player selection is a strength and conditioning program and the strength and conditioning coach. Uh, that is the cornerstone of all prevention, especially with a, a sport uh, that deals with overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm also curious about how much it's possible for a fan to tell from the outside, obviously not seeing any of the in-depth stuff that goes on from day to day, just trying to weigh how effective their team's staff is at managing injuries based on how many guys get hurt, how quickly they come back, whether the team's public comments match up with what actually happens to the players. Certain teams have developed reputations as having good or bad staffs, but I wonder what your perspective is because, you know, I'm sure there were Dodgers fans who were wondering about the team's training staff last year because the Dodgers had the most players placed on the DL last year and I think the third most days missed via injury. But, of course, it's a completely different staff in place this year. So if you were inclined to blame the people there last year, well, now you have to come up with a new explanation. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think when you look at a medical staff, many times like a manager, they get too much credit or too much blame. You know, the manager is responsible for wins and losses, but he, his influence doesn't always guarantee a win or a loss. If we use the manager as, a, as an example... 
he doesn't always have the players that he necessarily wants or needs, but he has to deal with those cards that he's dealt. So that goes into his wins and losses. Um, you know, there's some players, you know, some teams now that, that aren't playing very well. Is it their manager's fault or is it, is it, you know, a, a result of the type of players or the talent of the players that are there? He still has to try to win every game. The medical is similar to that, and that is that there's a big influence on how they can treat these players, get them back on the field once they're hurt, uh, or even do a preventative program. Uh, on the other hand, they have the cards that they're dealt. And as a fan, you may not know medical records. You, you know, there's a lot of information out there on uh, in the Internet and some of the analytic websites uh, in regards to some of the health uh, of players. But the biggest factor, and in, in we look at injury probabilities and different computer modeling, you know, one of the variables that has the most impact on predicting whether a player will have an injury is obviously whether he's had that injury before. Right. Uh, the best example of that is hamstrings. In the, and if you see a, a player who has a hamstring or two hamstrings every year for the last three years, probably a pretty good chance he's going to have hamstring the, the following year. And so if we use the hamstring example, then that GM needs to factor in that, that that guy's probably going to lose 30 days on a hamstring injury, no matter what you do. You, you know, there are preventative programs that go into these things. And Los Angeles Angels have a pretty good hamstring program that they've actually showed reduces hamstrings. Other teams have adopted that. You can put that in. But that player still carries that risk. And so that means in your roster management aspects that you have to look at whether or not uh, you need a backup to that particular guy. If you fast forward to the Dodgers, the Dodgers, I can tell you in 2015, we knew we were going to have a high injury season because of the players that were, were selected and, and signed. They had significant histories, uh, and you know, they were risks that the team was willing to take in hopes to, to uh, offset it with their performance. So you, you look at those kinds of things. But if you look at the Dodgers now and people say, why are they contending? I would tell you it's part of the front office plan in order to to really look at and say, okay, we need backups to these guys because they do have uh, histories that are significant, that might have medical risk. And so we use them as much as we can, but we need a plan B and a plan C. And if you look at what's happened with the Dodgers, they've had all these players that were injured, uh, but they've had backups. They had depth. Of course, financial ability to do that is helpful uh, to do that. And uh, a reverse team is something like the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's don't have the money. They need to take risks on medical in order to, to to get a payroll that they're able to deal with and still compete. So they're looking for players who, uh, which some people have termed, and I have too, scrap heap type players, uh, players who have really bad medicals but have great talent. And you pick those guys up for a discount, hoping they will come back and make a comeback that particular year. And if you look at Oakland, they've done that. Uh, this year, they haven't quite been able to do that. But they can't go out and buy new players the way other play- teams can or make trades and absorb money to if they don't have a plan B or a plan C. The Dodgers have done that, and the players that they've come up with have really held the fort, if you will, while Kershaw's out. I mean, the, you know, the win ratio um, since Kershaw's out is, is unbelievable when everybody thought that with Kershaw out, the Dodgers would tank. But that front office, uh, whether you like them or don't like them, uh, have done the job. They, they anticipated this, 
and they had players to come up and hold the fort until these other players came back. Right. So on Wednesday, Rich Hill started for the Dodgers. He was the 14th different pitcher to start a game for the Dodgers this season, which is tied for the major league lead. And a typical team tends to have about 10 different starting pitchers over the course of a season. We're not even into September yet, and the Dodgers are at 14. And As you mentioned, if you look at the names on this staff, whether it's Rich Hill or Brandon McCarthy or Scott Kazmir or Brett Anderson or Alex Wood, if the team had gone out and tried to acquire the most injury-prone pitchers, they really couldn't have assembled a, a better staff in that respect. So was the hope and the expectation that there's a reason to think that we can keep all these guys healthy or at least healthier than they had been in the past or was the thought that even if they continue to get hurt at the same rate that they have gotten hurt in the past, they will still be worth it? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder, really. And and you can um, you can I don't want to talk too much specifically about Dodger players because right. I'm not with the Dodgers anymore. But you know, as a fan or someone who analyzes injuries, you see um, they they made a great move, in my opinion, on Brett Anderson in the 215 season. Brett Anderson was the most injury prone. Oh my gosh, he'll never last. Was out for three or four years with different ailments and. He really had the label of accident prone, and that was all public. But looking looking at all his medical, uh, there was an opportunity and a possibility that he could he could stay healthy. And the Dodgers signed him to a one-year deal, which limited their risk. Because if he didn't last, well, then uh, he tried your best. It's worth looking at a four or five starter. And you know, but if he is healthy, he's really pretty good. Well, that's what we saw in 2015: is that he threw 180 innings. He stayed you know, relatively healthy, was effective, a, a great deal. Uh, and then uh, he signed again and got hurt. So, but the 2015 signing, I believe, was a very good sign. If you look at uh, Brandon McCarthy, who had a history of injury, but also a history of doing really well as a pitcher, especially in the second half of the 2014 season, well, he, you know, he ended up with Tommy John surgery. So that one hasn't worked out as well for them right now. Now they signed him to a four-year deal. So he still has time on that contract to make good. But his talent level was very, very high. But so was his health risk. So, uh, And then after Tommy John surgery, when you come off Tommy John surgery, uh, there's a really good uh, amount of uh, literature and, and studies out there that show that a, a guy coming back from Tommy John surgery has a real good chance, you know, in some people's 80 or 83% chance of coming back and being the pitcher he was before the injury. So you know, uh, that's a risk you take with any starting pitcher. How those two turned out uh, are both ones with history of injuries. One worked out well and one didn't work out as well in 2015. Mm-hmm. But that's what you're, that's a lot of times what you're looking at. And that is you have to balance this stuff. And, and I look at it as a portfolio, just like stocks. What is your portfolio going to be? Is it going to be a high risk, high reward portfolio, or is it going to be moderate? or it's low risk, what is it going to be? And a lot has to do with the talent that you have and the money you have to spend on that. So if you have a diversified portfolio, you have some guys in there um, that are high risk but high reward. So you put a few high risk stocks in there hoping to hit on those. Uh If you have a lot of those, however, and the stock market goes down, you lose a lot real quick. So how, how you decide you want to make that portfolio and you look at each individual stock to see what they are, how good or bad that stock is, and what the risk is. If you have a player uh, who has a 10 on a scale of 0 to 10, and 10 being a Hall of Famer, and you have a guy who is an 8, 
but his health risk is a 10, meaning he's really high risk. Can you find a seven talent-wise with a guy who has a lower risk who's going to stay out there and play all year? And how do you balance that? Now, part of that has to do with the fact that there really is not yet a reasonable injury prediction system. And in fact, many people feel like injuries are going back to your original thing, luck. It's just a matter of luck. Well, I, I sure don't think it's a matter of luck. Uh, a guy hits a wall and breaks his leg, that's bad luck. But, you know, a shoulder and elbow overuse injury, I think you I think you can help mitigate some of those risks. One is by the selection process, two is by this by the medical department. Um, so can you find comparables that meet your goal in the portfolio for that spot? If you're looking for a fifth starter, what are you looking for? Or a four starter? And, and that also has to do with what your minor league system is and what you're able to bring up if that guy is a higher risk and falls down. So all those variables, it gets more and more complex the farther down the rabbit hole you go uh, in regards to that. But having an injury uh, risk assessment program that uh, gives your front office a concept of what the relative risk is and what the probabilities is of staying healthy and performing the way the player is able to do uh, is critical. And that is very much in its infancy. It's nowhere near where we are with performance analytics. Yeah. And I'm curious about that because I know that last year with the Dodgers, you tried testing the Kitman Labs profiler system and a couple other teams have tried that too. I don't know how much it's in use at the major league level now, but I wonder between that and between all of the StatCast data that's available now that can tell you things like how fast a player is running or how quick a jump he's getting or how hard he's hitting the ball or how much a pitcher's pitch is spinning on the way to the plate, all of those things that potentially at least could be indicators of an impending injury. To what degree are teams trying to use those technologies as a preventative measure and saying, well, we see a, a bad sign here. This guy's arm slot is dropping, his spin rate is down, whatever it is. Let's shut him down now and hopefully be able to get him back to full strength instead of having something more serious happen. I think I, uh, I think every team is trying to do some of that, some probably doing more than others. The The problem is that the type of system that you need is a, a medical, uh, a injury uh, a modeling system based on predictive software which are now more and more available. Uh, what you see a lot of is people will say, Tommy John injuries, if you will, the UCL injuries are caused because you throw too hard. Um, another one says it's because you're throwing too many sliders. It's because you're throwing too many pitches or something like that. And the answer is one or two variables don't really tell you the picture. What you need to do is get machine learning involved uh, to be able to uh, put the variables in and really see which variables increase your prediction in regards to injuries. That is a re- is a really difficult thing. Uh, there's only a few people that I know are who are trying to do that. Uh, at least are publicly trying to do that, and using pitch FX data uh, and other performance and informance metrics to try to do this. Now, the simplest way to do that is looking at a decrease in velocity. A player is throwing 90, an average of 93 miles an hour. And then in June, he's throwing 88. Something's wrong, right? So is that an injury or is that something else? Or what, what is that going on? Um, Jeff Zimmerman, uh, um, who writes a lot of articles on fan graphs uh, and other places, you know, thinks that previous history plus, plus zone percentage, a change in zone percentage, which indicates control, might be it. The answer is 
that it probably is a whole lot of different variables that have to be put into a system that's able to spit out a probability. And then people have to understand what probability is, you know, and, and, and probability is never at 100%. So, you know, if you have an 80% probability, which would be tremendous if you could get a computer program to do that, uh, that would be great. That means still 20% of the time the guy doesn't get hurt or gets hurt when you don't think he is. So, uh, and that's some of the work that I'm doing now with a couple different companies who work with baseball analytics and looking at a lot of the pitch FX data and histories as well as usage and different, different variables. But it will never be one or two variables that you can lean on. And I think right now we're doing, we've been doing that for a while of using one or two variables as a proxy for the total prediction. And I don't know if I said all that right, but, but it's pretty complex. I think we're going to get there. I think front offices will be able to utilize a system. At the end of the day, it'll be just like the sabermetrics versus scouts, however, and that is a program will tell you something and get you in a nice direction, uh, but the people and the medical people will be able to evaluate that to put a little bit of the icing on the cake to get that into a closer prediction and also put it in a baseball vernacular that can, and the front office can decide which players they want. If you get a bunch of healthy guys who can't play baseball, it's not going to do you much good. So how do you balance that? And with the number of analytic front offices, I think uh, medical is going to be more and more and more important. As you know, injuries are still going up. They're going up. They haven't slowed down. And last year was a record year for disabled list days and placements and dollars. And this year has a really good chance of breaking that record. So in spite of all the prevention, as, as far as all the analytic uh, evaluations and medical risk assessments, injuries are still going up. So we have all these great medical teams, much more educated trainers, strength coaches, uh, physicians, great surgeons, top people in the world, and injuries are still going up. So um, we're not there yet. Obviously, we're just not there. Yeah, there was news a few years ago that a team had licensed or bought or was using a Cray supercomputer and everyone was wondering, oh, which team is it and what could they possibly be using it for? And I don't know whether this is the case, but it sounds at least like doing something on in-game injury predictions and trying to monitor a pitcher in real time to see if there's any red flag or warning sign that you could potentially catch before something serious happens would be at least one application for that type of technology. Just a guess, though. Yeah, just, yeah, and, you know, there are teams, uh, you know, the Chicago White Sox for 30 years have had low DOs. Yeah. And so that's not a, a recent phenomenon, although this year they, they're a little higher than they usually are. They're still low, way low. And if you look at analytic teams, uh, you also, at least this year anyway, have to look at the uh, Houston Astros, who have a very low DL this year. In fact, I think they have the lowest as far as DL goes. You know, and I suspect that a team, if they're utilizing a system that is, in fact, working, there's a good chance we'll never know about it. Right. Okay. So earlier this year, Russ Stripling went on the DL after a, a couple bad starts. And when he came back up, he was speaking to Alana Rizzo, the reporter, and he had gone on the DL with what was called lower body fatigue. And Stripling told Alana, lower body fatigue is a fancy way of saying I had an innings limit. I needed to work on some things. So without necessarily speaking about any players or DL stints specifically, how common is that kind of thing? How many DL stints are just 
someone had a rough couple of starts and maybe there's some minor nagging injury that isn't really preventing him from pitching or playing, but you figure he could use the mental break anyway, so you just sort of use it as the DL justification. Is that common? Mm -hmm. And do teams ever get caught or or called on that? Well, uh, Major League Baseball does look at that uh, as far as the DL goes because it does affect the DL first of all, is not an injury database or anything about its theme is injuries, but it really is a roster management to, to replace players who are hurt at the major league level. Okay. So, um, so it's a transaction and transactions are different for different people. The question really is, is uh, the phantom DL, which is what you're talking about. Right. You know, how is, is that more prevalent now than it was before? And is that making the DL go up? Well, when you start looking at this thing, most phantom DLs will not be of a long duration. So when looking at the DL and the studies that we've done dating back to 1998, we've seen no increase in the zero to 30 DL days. In fact, we haven't really seen much changes in any of those categories of how long a player stays on the DL, which indicates to us uh, that there probably has been phantom DLs going on along all the way here and there. But over when you look at trends over a long time, it probably doesn't skew the data anything. So now there are teams that, um, you know, innings limits are one thing in young players, but also the change in the amount of what a starting pitcher uses now, not just with innings, uh, but a number of starts, whether it's worthwhile to give a, a, a pitcher in the middle of the season a two or three week break so that he doesn't wear out at the end or he gets rejuvenated uh, is somewhat of a concept that there may be teams that are doing that. I don't know. I sure don't know for sure that any team is doing that, but it would make some sense that it, to give a, a guy a break. Now you can't do that necessarily with a guy who has to clear waivers to go to the minor leagues. You can't just send him to the minor leagues. The DL is a mechanism like that. Personally, I don't think that's being used any more than it it ever has been. I think um, teams have a right to put a person on a DL if they have a, even a minor injury, if they don't think they, they can perform. Uh, so um, I guess that's the best way to answer that, that that particular question as far as the DL. Now, in order to, to get better at this, however, in regards to injury analytics, Major League Baseball uh, in 2010 had, had, had set up has set up an electronic medical records. And that electronic medical records is really detailed, not like the DL, and includes minor league players as well as major league players, and is very rich in detail in, as far as the depth of the injury itself. Each day, an athletic trainer at every level and every player who's hurt makes an entry into this thing, uh, the system. And we're able to get data out of that. Now, like any system, it's taken five years to collect enough data to develop some kind of trends and also test the validity of the system, which we have. Now you're going to see multiple articles come out in medical journals based on this data, which is going to be a lot more rich than using the disabled list. The disabled list has been a proxy, and a pretty good proxy if used over 10 or 15 years, but not very good year to year. And uh, because of the kinds of things that you're talking about, plus we don't have real details. When somebody says a, a player has a knee injury, is it really an ankle injury or maybe it's even a shoulder injury? They just don't want to, you know, put that out there that he has a bigger injury. So, um, you know, so we don't have super accurate data in the DL. And that's the limitations on all the studies that we've done on the DL. But now we really have a great system. It's called the HIT system, H-I-T-S system. 
um, that is a database on injuries uh, throughout the entire professional baseball. And uh, that is rich in data, and I think we're going to learn more and more about injuries. So there's no reason to uh, fake a DL or do anything else. This is part of the player's medical records. Uh, uh, you can't get individual players. It's de-identified. It's a joint program with Major League Baseball and the Players Association in order to study these injuries so that we can c come in and try to prevent them. And is there ever a point at which you just have too many injured players to tend to? If you're the Dodgers right now and you have over a dozen players on the DL, some on the 15-day, some on the 60-day, is there a point where you're just running out of trainers to deal with all of these people? Is there ever a logistical mm -hmm. issue with that when there is an injury stack and a, a crunch like this? Uh, yeah, well, um, the medical stamps have, have improved greatly, both in quality but also in quantity. In the 1990s, uh, there was one trainer, and then they added a second trainer. Until about five years ago, most there, were, there was only two trainers and a team physician. Uh, then uh, the people started adding a third trainer or a physical therapist to their staff. And then the other advent was what's called a rehab coordinator. The rehab coordinator is in the minor league system, typically at their spring training facility. And that's where minor league players typically go to rehab, but also major league players that are long term. They'll go, uh, they'll go to the spring training facility and uh, work there. That unloads the, the major league trainers from the, doing that. Um, the Dodgers, um, you know, have quite a few. They've got uh, four athletic trainers, a physical therapist, a strength coach. So, you know, um, or two strength coaches. They have quite a big medical team, uh, and more teams are doing that. The other advent is a director of medical services, uh, someone who can overlook the entire program uh, because you have injuries all over the place. Help needs to be done in the minor leagues as well as the major leagues so that the major league training staff can concentrate on the major league team. And uh, you're seeing this. Uh, Milwaukee has got this. The Cubs have it. Cleveland has had it for years. Someone who oversees the whole program, looks at the analytics, but also helps in managing the injuries as well. So major league baseball has really geared up in that respect. So um, there's definitely people that can, that can get the job done. The key is not to have too many injuries, which is what the ultimate goal is. Right. All right. And last question, you've mentioned a, a lot of potential places to improve a training staff, but if you had a bunch of money and said, hey, someone come in and consult and tell us what to do with our training staff, if you had to allocate that money to either getting a medical services person, as you just mentioned, or getting more trainers on the ground, or hiring analysts who would study data to try to find things about injuries in the numbers, or invest in technology that maybe hasn't been tried yet, or anything else we haven't mentioned yet, where would you devote the bulk of those resources? Well, right now, I would. Um, some of these go together. First of all, I don't, I don't think necessarily more trainers are going to help the situation in regards to that. I think you have to go into into the analytics, injury analytics in regards to really figuring out what your risks are and being uh, more precise with that, both in trades, uh, amateur draft, releases. I think one of the things that I've recommended to several teams who have asked me is they need to actually do a risk assessment on every one of their players, their own players, um, so that they know exactly what their risk is within the system to know from a medical standpoint where you might want to improve those particular areas in regards to 
to risk. So you either put prevention programs in or uh, maybe you trade that player or you put him in a package that, you, that, that gets you something back healthier. Uh, everybody is looking at the, the risk assessments in, in trades, in the amateur draft, and you know, free agents. The problem really is for me is many times the risk assessment falls on the head trainer to do those, those uh, evaluations. And they're very difficult to do, especially with the information we have. You have to go through a lot of medical records, but you also have to know which risk philosophies you have. And that's really difficult for the head trainer to do while taking care of everything else. So I would tell you the combination of a medical director who has analytics and injury analytic concepts um, and who has been on the ground to do that probably is the guy to do that. I think, again, the model uh, probably is Cleveland and Chicago, who's done this, uh, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, I think they're headed in the right direction, at least the direction uh, I would probably re- recommend for a team looking to do something. And when you start looking at the dollars, we haven't really talked about the money involved, especially for a middle market team, you can't afford to make a mistake and put a lot of money in a player who's not going to play. So that type of R&D in regards to injury analytics and risk assessments, pays off can pay off with one player. And uh, so uh, I think that uh, we've done the R&D on analytics. Uh, every, every team has five to 15 performance uh, uh, analytic people on their staff, uh, and then they're sort of doing the medical to the side. I think they need to put more effort into that. So, you know, the, the dollars become big. I mean, you know, with replacement costs at minimum, uh, you know, $700 million a year, you know, that's over $2, million, uh, $2 billion over three years. And a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon starts to be big money. And um, some teams can afford that. Some teams cannot afford that. And those are the ones that really need the help uh, for competitive advantage. I think Billy Bean said this years ago, maybe at the MIT Sloan conference saying the last competitive advantage in baseball is medical and i think they need to start putting more resources into that and that's where i would start all right well if you are trying to keep a team healthy and you want stan's help you can find it at (laughs) contiinjuryanalytics.com stan thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge appreciate it always good talking to you yeah Good talking to you. Thanks. All right. So that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with new episodes of the Ringer MLB show next week. Enjoy the end of your week and your weekend, and we will talk to you then.